everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. A few weeks ago, Dr. Jason Mansour joined us to discuss how to spot heat stroke and heat exhaustion and what to do during extreme heat events. Dr. Mansour is the chair of emergency medicine at Broward Health. I've asked him to join us again today to discuss automated external defibrillators, or AEDs, bleeding control kits, or BCKs, and certified emergency response teams, or CERTs. So we're going to be discussing a lot of acronyms today. Broward County, Florida recently adopted new requirements related to life preservation equipment. That ordinance requires multi-story residential buildings with five or more floors to have AEDs and BCKs no later than October 24, 2023. I imagine there are countless ordinances like this around the country, so we wanted to have a medical perspective of how and when to use these devices. So with that, Dr. Mansour, welcome back to Take It to the Board. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to join us again. Your other episode was extremely popular. And so today we're going to be talking about all the things I mentioned in the introduction. Let's start with the AEDs. What is an AED and how does it work? So an AED is an automatic external defibrillator. So your heart, in order to squeeze, needs electrical conduction. And sometimes that electrical conduction becomes disorganized. So instead of things, let's, for lack of a better word, like instead of things being linear, they kind of get chaotic or a short circuit. And a defibrillator is a jolt of electricity that essentially will act on your heart's conduction system, almost like Control-Alt-Delete works on your computer. It sort of just resets everything and starts things back at point A. And in doing so, the goal is to take disorganized electricity in the heart and restore it back to organized activity within the heart. And in doing so, restore someone's pulse. Is there a time threshold within which the device must be used? Or is it just any time before, obviously, somebody has died? I mean, is there an optimum time period to use this device? The sooner, the better. And just to give you some idea, they've actually studied this. And the safest place to have a cardiac arrest in the entire United States, believe it or not, is in a Las Vegas casino. Because there's a camera on you at all times. And within one minute, uh, you hit the ground, there's an AED on you, able to shock you. And so getting return of spontaneous circulation back in a place like that, where they can apply an AED and apply a shock really quickly, the the survival rates are tremendously higher than anywhere else in the community. Because anywhere else, even if you called 911, Getting that AID to the person, there's there's inevitably some delay, even if it's under 10 minutes, which is good time. It's not what you would get when there's the eye in the sky taking a look at you, you know? So obviously, the sooner the better. If it's within minutes, the, the survival rates are very high. When you get out beyond 10, 15 minutes, then they're pretty, the prognosis is pretty poor. So you, you want to, you know, apply a shock as early as humanly possible. You know, in some of our communities, the residents actually resist the cameras being placed in the gyms, the other common areas out by the pool. But to your point, if somebody does have a cardiac arrest in the gym and there's a camera there and somebody's watching it, you can get to them much more quickly than if they're in there working out alone. As a matter of fact, I think that's what happened to Cheryl Sandberg's husband. Mm-hmm. who passed away. He had been on vacation. They were on vacation. He was working out in the gym. He had a he had a, a heart attack and, and expired. Yeah, it's it's all about the time to first shock. And so in any way, in any system, you know, when patients come to our emergency department, 
the question is always, was this witnessed or unwitnessed? If the person's cardiac arrest was unwitnessed, there's an unknown downtime before that person was even discovered, which you know potentially means they could have been down for a really long time. Those unwitnessed arrests, the prognosis is really poor. If it is witnessed arrest, you know, where somewhere I looked over, I saw him collapse. You start the clock at that point, like, you know, that's the moment that it happened and you have the AED on the way, they do much better. So any any method, any technology we can use in order to deliver a shock quicker is better. What powers the device? Is it battery, electricity, a combination of the two? Yeah, I mean, it has a it has a power source, which is typically a battery that delivers the shock. What kind of training do you need? Surprisingly, very little. Um, you know, obviously there are you know healthcare providers are well trained in, in in an advanced way, but even a layman who has no training whatsoever, if you open it up, the manufacturers of these devices design them in such a way to make them overly simplified because they know that every time this thing's being opened, it's a stressful situation and quite often someone who doesn't have medical training. So they'll be, you know, place this pad here, place this, and there'll be a picture right on there where to put the pads, they're adhesive. And you kind of stick that on your chest and stick that over here in your abdomen. And then it'll, you'll, you know, it'll automatically go into a phase called analyzing where it's going to analyze the heart rhythm. And if it's finding that disorganized heart rhythm, like what we're talking about, it'll, it usually talks to you and it'll say, shock is advised. And then it'll tell you what to do, hands off, and everyone's hands off, and then it could deliver the shock and then say, remain, resume CPR. So it almost acts like an automated coach that's kind of built into the device. Mm -hmm. And so even if you have little to no training, you have no experience with it, you being able to just open it up and just see what's there and let it, you know, try to sort of figure it out with the simple instructions it's giving you. Now, keep in mind, always when you first see a situation like that, you always call for help. And typically 911 will be on the phone and they'll coach you too. And so if you, if you have somebody that somebody, a 911 dispatcher will coach you if you're having any trouble with it. Oh, but that's an important point. shock is so, so, so critical. So the ordinance, the Broward County ordinance I mentioned in the introduction does require associations to have employees and perhaps other people trained on this device. Does Broward Health offer in-person training on the use of defibrillators? So I think what you're asking about is BLS, basic life support class, right? These are the, This is a course that like lifeguards take and, you know, people that are going to be around something like this. That aren't necessarily doctors or nurses or people working in a hospital. BLS courses typically are offered by training facilities. They offer BLS, ACLS, which is advanced cardiac life support, pediatric advanced life support. So these are all sort of credentials that you can get. And there are many training centers. Broward Health, we occasionally do offer certain training courses. It's not, we don't regularly offer uh, BLS courses here, but if you just go to the American Heart Association's website, it'll give you a list of places where you can get trained. Is there normally a cost associated with training for those centers? Um, typically, yes. If you go to a commercial center, um, okay. keep in mind that like, you know, uh, like fire rescue and EMS units sometimes have outreach programs where they offer training to the general public as just a public outreach. So, you know, I would just say rec- like reach out to your local EMS and see if those are ever available. You know, this happens frequently where the legislature has a good idea. Um, in this case, it's it's local government has a good idea on an ordinance, but then it's not really fleshed out. Like who gets the training? Where do they go for the training? Does the training cost anything? So yeah. we're still, those are still some questions that we need to have answered. I did want to ask you, is there any, is there any way to use the AED improperly? Pull it out. You don't follow any direct, I mean, and, and what are the risks associated with doing that? Yeah, um, there's, there's not a ton of risk. The risk really is is by using it improperly, you're not delivering what the patient needs. 
Uh, so if if the pads are not applied appropriately and the the shock is not being delivered where it needs to go, then it's it, you know it's not doing anything. The risk to you as the rescuer is very minimal. In fact, there are some rescuers that will like continue compressions throughout the shock, and you feel a little bit, but it's not like something like a lightning bolt that kind of blows you away there. So um, you know the risk really is to the patient. I wanted to ask you what's the difference in terms of you've got somebody who's had a, a cardiac event, they're on the floor, they're unconscious, unconscious. What's the difference between applying CPR versus using the defibrillator? I know one's providing an electric shock. Is there is there a difference in terms of outcome? They're, they're they're trying to accomplish two different things. So if my heart stopped right this moment, uh, my brain would be dead somewhere around a, a 10 minute mark with no flow to the brain. And I will be essentially from that point a vegetable. If I do CPR, so I'm doing chest compressions, I'm trying to substitute for a pump, a pump that's not working. So by pushing on the chest, I'm forcing blood out of the heart, up the carotid arteries into the brain, trying to perfuse the brain. By coming off of the chest, I allow the heart to refill with blood and pushing down again, I'm pushing that blood forward. So essentially, I'm trying to do the function of the heart with, while until I have the ability to get the heart to resume pump function. Now, CPR is the goal of CPR is to perfuse the brain. It is not necessarily to restore the rhythm. That's what the electric shock is doing. And that's trying to wake the pump up, mm-hmm. right? Once the pump wakes up, I don't need CPR anymore because the pump is working. So CPR is a temporizing and it buys time. It buys time for EMS to arrive, for you to get to a hospital and some other trained medical personnel who have more equipment to try to get your heart going again. So it's just to, to keep your brain alive longer. Essentially, think of, think of CPR as uh, something you're doing, even though you're doing it on the chest, really it's benefiting the brain and the coronary arteries for that, for that matter. Um, Can chest compressions ever result in the heart starting again, starting to beat on its own again? Yeah, it could. It could. But that's not the the said intention of it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes um, just that stimulation that you're doing to the heart, it, you know, it, it's, I suppose it could re- restore cardiac function. Uh, but ultimately, that AED and trying to reverse the underlying process is really the best chance that patient has to get pump function back. So if it's a heart attack that caused their heart to stop, getting them to a hospital that has the ability to open up that clogged artery is really what's going to get them back. If it's, you know, critical hypothermia or critical uh, electrolyte problem that caused their heart to stop, us reversing that process is really the, the best thing they have. So the CPR is buying us time to get to that moment. What about mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? And I apologize if my questions as an attorney sound outlandish in terms of medical questions, but if somebody's here working on the defibrillator, should somebody else be providing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to start giving oxygen? So there's good studies on this that show that the adding mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to um, chest compressions adds very little. And what we found when we when it was being studied was um, bystanders were reluctant to to do any CPR whatsoever because bystanders were reluctant to put their mouth on a stranger. So yeah. too many bystanders were keeping their hands in their pocket. So what they found was that there was this kind of a public campaign to push what we call hands-only CPR. Look, just do the chest compressions. We're not adding a ton more value by adding any rescue breaths. That's if EMS is going to arrive in a timely manner. Now, if you're somewhere on a mountain or somewhere where it's going to take a long time for any rescuer to get there, then mouth-to-mouth adds some benefit. But in most places, in most U.S. cities, EMS is going going to arrive in a timely manner. If you could just get those chest compressions going, 
Um, Hands-only CPR is completely acceptable, in fact, encouraged by the American Heart Association. When you're using an AED, different size pads for a, a child, a minor with an incident as opposed to an adult? Dr. Mansour? Yeah, there are pediatric pads. So when you open it up, you know, it'll, it'll be very clearly labeled and, you know, when to use these versus those. Um, so it, it should be pretty obvious when you open an AED. So let's move to bleeding control kits, because that's one of the things the ordinance requires as well. And, and like I said in the introduction, I'm sure there's ordinances around the country that are similar in terms of requiring these items in multifamily buildings. So my basic understanding is, it contains tourniquets, gloves, scissors, gauze rolls, and gauze pads. Basically, anything to to stop bleeding is is that it? Is that how it is? It that simplistic? Pretty much. I mean, the, essentially, these bleeding control kits are usually from penetrating trauma and somebody who's hemorrhaging out, and we're trying to control the hemorrhage. So, gloves are your personal protective equipment. The scissors involved there. Sometimes you need to cut someone's jeans to get to the wound, so you can address the wound. Um, the uh, gauze is for you to, to apply direct pressure. And a lot of the, the these kits are, have these hemostatic gauzes that are embedded with uh, material that helps blood to clot. Mm. And so by pr- applying pressure with something like that, there's kind of two ways that's going to stop bleeding there. And if you can't control bleeding with direct pressure, that's when tourniquet comes into play where you're going to try to stop blood flow to that extremity. You know, this is, uh, I think, to all the movies I've ever watched where somebody gets shot or gets gets stabbed and they, you know, they take out the belt or, you know, somebody rips off their shirt and they tie it up. Um, but you just mentioned that the gauze actually would have, because I'm wondering, what's the difference between this and what we see in, in movies or on TV where somebody uses a belt as a tourniquet or uses, you know, a shirt? Um, if you don't have a, a commercially available tourniquet, then any of those would be fine. Um, you know, the, um, the commercially available ones kind of works like, like winding a watch, you know, and so you can apply the pressure and release the pressure pretty easily. And you don't have to necessarily take away 100% of the compression, um, where, you know, with a belt, it's a little harder to do that. But if that's what you have, that's fine. Now, most bleeding can be controlled with direct pressure. So nobody should go directly to a tourniquet. So even if you see somebody bleeding pretty briskly from a limb or something like that, if you can put gauze on it and just put a lot of pressure on it, usually you can control it that way. Now, if if whatever the penetrating injury is hit an artery, it'll be difficult to control with direct pressure, especially a major artery. So in that case, you'll still see quite a bit of bleeding. And that's when the turn comes into play. I was going to ask you, how successful are these bleeding control kits at saving lives? Really, it has to do with what exact the exact injury is. You know, anything that would hit a major vessel like the aorta, you really, you're not doing much with those kits. Those patients are going to die regardless of what you do. They do best on extremity trauma. So arm leg that's bleeding out, they they work really well. And you have some time there because typically the internal organs, the brain, the heart, and the critical organs are still going to be perfused. And as long as you don't allow that blood to exsanguinate or come out of your body, um, you have some time to get that person to, to a trauma center. And, and that's really the role that the, they play. You mentioned with the AEDs that the kits themselves have have instructions. Is it the same with these BCKs, the bleeding control kits? Yeah, the boxes should have like big, bold letters of what they are. Um, the thing is, there's so many different types and manufacturers, and there's basic kits and more advanced kits that have more things in them. So it's it's tough to, for me to answer that with some sort of blanket statement right. of all of them. 
And I haven't, I've only seen a couple, to be honest. Like I, it's not something I routinely open because we don't really use those in the ED. Those are pre-hospital uh, medical care, essentially. So um, I would imagine, you know, with the caveat that I haven't opened up every manufacturer's, but I would imagine that they're pretty self-explanatory. I would hope there's not a lot of reading because when you're, <laughs> when you're when you're confronted with somebody bleeding in front of you, you yeah. and hopefully you don't have a large uh, number of instructional pages to go through. Right. Is there any risk, doctor, of a bloodborne infection I, for the person using the BCK, the rescuer? I know there's gloves, but sometimes, you know, gloves typically end here. Is there any risk of a bloodborne infection? Yeah, your best protection against a bloodborne infection is your body's own skin. Um, you know, you using gloves is, is similar to the the ppe that we use in the in the hospital now of course somebody's like exsanguinating out we have more than that but your your body's defense really is your skin and the gloves that you're wearing now if you had an open wound and someone else's blood that has a bloodborne pathogen in it was on the open wound yes there's a theoretic risk but this has been studied and the risk is extremely low for bloodborne pathogens like hiv well less than 1% that's if the patient had that and you had an open wound or a, like a needle stick or something like that. Um, the risk is extremely low. Well, let's turn to our last acronym, the CERT team, the Community Certified Emergency Response Team. Um, I do have a lot of communities that are looking into this. Some have already um, set up these volunteers in the community. Others are considering doing it. Normally, it's done because when we have a mass casualty or a, a, a very large event, like right now, we're taping this on August 30th, and Idalia has already made landfall and created uh, not a little bit of destruction. The volunteers, the first responders, may not be able to get everywhere all at once. So you've got these volunteers to to perhaps do their part until the first responders can get there. What could you tell, what advice would you have for CERT members in terms of triaging uh, victims? Okay, that's a good question. So triage comes into play when the demand exceeds the capability of taking care of them, right? The, so the, the if you have five CERT providers and 10 victims, then we need to triage. So you, you're hoping that in these situations, like it's not a mass casualty type event, but if it is, what we generally recommend is a quick assessment of each victim and we triage them in sort of tiers or we sort of label them. And sometimes we use colors or numbers or, or what have you. The most commonly ones used are, are colors. Mm-hmm. So black is what we call expectant, which is a person is deceased. Um, and regardless of what you're going to do, uh, you can't really spend resources there because the, the odds of them coming back are very, very low. There's red, which needs immediate address. They need to immediately be addressed. So those patients are in respiratory distress or in clear danger or some airway issue or they're choking or something like that. Uh, those are the highest triage level. Um, there's like a yellow, which we call delayed, which they have some injuries, but they're able to talk. They're able to wave at you. They're able to follow a command. And those patients, you have a little more time to address. You go to immediate first and you go to yellow. And then there's there's green, which is like uh, minimal, right? I broke my leg, maybe the bone sticking out of the leg. Well, that's that's a terrible injury. But that's not necessarily life threatening, and so that's a that's a in, in this type of scenario considered a minimal uh, injury, and that we have time there. So every patient in a situation like that, you'd have to label them one or another, and sometimes people will use something to label them with, and in order to keep everything organized, because what you don't want is a provider spending an exorbitant amount of time on someone that has a low 
a very poor prognosis. So if you if you come upon someone who's collapsed, you're trying to assess whether or not they're responsive and whether they have a pulse and whether they're breathing. And if there's something, if there's someone who's who's not showing those signs of life and not something immediately reversible, like something blocking their airway that you can take mm-hmm. out or something like that, then that really is a patient you need to move on from and go to the next patient and figure out what category they're in. Do you know where these cert teams where where people can find out more information about creating these cert teams for their community? Um, certainly, I, I think that that. Like your local like fire department spearheads the cert teams and they do outreach and, and training and things like that. Um, I believe on the FEMA website, they, there may be information there. Don't quote me on that, but I think they uh, they may have some information there as well. I just have to ask you, what what advice do you give your interns? So you oversee the emergency department. I sh- I'm sure the first week for the new interns coming in in the emergency department. Just tell us what you tell them. I tell them that the emergency department is like an all-you-can-eat buffet, and <laughs> you want to leave this buffet very well-fed. You know, like there's so much medicine happening, and our department's very busy. Uh, we see so many patients, and we've been serving this community for you know decades and decades. And we see from the sickest of the sick to the most minor injury, and there's learning to be done on every single case. And I ask our interns to stay, you know, uh, stay proactive in in their learning. So. Don't allow a learning opportunity to walk by you. You know, if you have the opportunity to learn how to do a procedure, learn it. If you have an opportunity to learn something from the most mundane case, uh, take that opportunity. And and um, and you want to leave your training in our hospital ability to tackle anything, to handle the world. You know, not every emergency department is like ours. We're a level one trauma center. We're a cardiac center. We're a stroke center of excellence. You know, so we see everything. And we're the receiving facility from not only here in Broward County, but the Caribbean and we get, we get life flight patients from cruise ships and from all over the place. So being in a re- receiving facility, we really get to see it all. So you have the opportunity to be able to handle it all. And you may in the future be working in a rural place and there is not so much backup and so many specialists all around you. And you are going to have to be able to manage somebody's eye emergency or airway emergency, or maybe uh, you have to manage somebody's orthopedic injury or something that, that, um, you have the opportunity to learn here and you get to apply in a place like that. So even the kid who sticks the marble up his nose, you can learn something from that, right? Certainly. There's definitely do's and don'ts when it comes to almost everything. <laughs> so we've talked about AEDs. We've talked about BCKs. Are there other certain life-saving devices that our community associations should consider having in their communities in the event of a, you know, an emergency? Um. Yeah. I mean, the, the things that, you probably already have uh, fire extinguishers and flotation devices close to the pool. Uh, one thing that I think is is a good idea to have available is something to check someone's sugar. Uh, sometimes it's something very simple like a glass of orange juice can fix somebody, but you don't necessarily know unless you know that their sugar is mm-hmm. low. So um, those are just simple things that uh, it can really save lives. And you know, most most of the the, the people that are probably listening to this are in a, a city or somewhere where EMS is close by. Um, and they're always very helpful. And um, they're, they're, they can quickly come to you, right, uh, and, and be available to you. So they're always there if you need them. And for our listeners, you know, as the attorney on the episode, I would say reach out to counsel, 
Um, there are good Samaritan laws, but you're certainly going to want to know what the legal parameters are when you're trying to assist somebody um, in the midst of a medical emergency. You've been great with your time. Once again, I want to ask one final question. Um, we, we've talked before, so you do attend medical conferences. Is there any new technology on the horizon for any of these life-saving devices? There is always innovation in medicine and new new medical devices, whether it be devices to uh, achieve better airway, visualization of the airway. Um, you know, we, we now rely on um, more automation with CPR. Uh, so we have a device called a Lucas device, which kind of acts like a, a wrap around the chest and it attaches to the backboard. And it actually does the chest compressions for you. And because it's automated, uh, you don't have to rely on human human error and human fatigue or, or, or have those as pitfalls. So the, the machine will just keep the chest compressions at the exact depth and the exact rate that it's supposed to, and it never tires. So it just keeps going until that battery dies. So, you know, a device like that was really a game changer when it came to uh, resuscitation and CPR. And new devices like that are coming out all the time. Well, September 28th is National Good Neighbor Day. This episode is going to come out after that. But there's um, no better demonstration of being a good neighbor than helping save your neighbor's life. So with that, I want to thank you for coming on again. And I, and I, all good things. And thank you for doing what you do in the community. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect. 